Section 4 of Association Football and How to Play It. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 4, Chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 8, The Referee. In one way, the most important man on the field is the referee, as the success of the game depends a great deal on his ability to control the play and players adequately. He is commonly known as the Knight of the Whistle, and his responsibilities are manifold. To be a successful referee, one must keep thoroughly fit and be able to turn out onto the field in as good a condition as the player does, for he has got to go through more running than any of the 22 players and must keep up with their pace. Like Caesar's wife, he should be above suspicion and give his decisions without fear or favor. It is the weak referee that often spoils a game and brings football into disgrace. Refereeing in a first-class match is much easier than taking the whistle in what we might call junior ones. In senior circles, players know the game from A to Z and play accordingly, but often a referee has to use more judgment than if he were officiating for the English Cup at the Crystal Palace. However, this is only by the way, and I must dwell upon the senior referee more than the junior. In brief, my ideal referee must have the following qualifications. 1. A thorough knowledge of the rules of the game. 2. Be strong-minded enough to enforce his decisions when once they are given. 3. He should have been a player himself and still be as active as ever on the field. 4. He must be an autocrat. If necessary, the F.A. will support him to the fullest extent possible. Really, the duties of a referee are manifold. He has full control of the play and must use a great amount of tact, for if he does not, he not only spoils the game but his own reputation. He should be quick in giving his decisions, and must adhere to them despite the grumblings and comments of the players or spectators. The professional footballer of today is very quick in weighing up the referee. He knows in his heart whether he can do as he likes or if the referee is to be obeyed. Supposing the man with the whistle is weak, no one knows better than the players, and again, if he is strong, they know they can take no liberties during the course of the game. In ordinary games, the referee must be strong and have no connection with the clubs engaged. The most able referees that I have played under or witnessed were men who were slow to speak, but when occasion arose, were quick to act. As a matter of fact, they have simply to say, do this, and it is done and there is trouble for anyone who endeavors to dispute their ruling. The greatest referee may make mistakes, still he must maintain the dignity of his decisions when once given. In many ways, a referee is born and not made, and all the best referees are those who have played the game when they were young, and have followed it up continually since leaving off, actually taking part in the kicking of the ball. Their hearts are in the game, and this makes all the difference to a great degree whether they are successful or not. In senior circles, referees are supposed to be unbiased, which I am glad to say in the general run of cases they are. The crowd of the home side are naturally in favor of their friends, and the referee has often to put up with any amount of comment and ridicule. It is then that he should show his character and worth by distributing the law of the game as it ought to be done in all honesty and fairness. Probably it may be considered vanity on my part to give the would-be referee a few ideas from a player's point of view, 
a referee should if possible know each man by name and the position he occupies in the field so that if a reprimand is necessary he can say jones or mcpherson stop that a little phrase like that goes a very long way and i may attribute the secret of some of our referees success to knowing the names of the players they are refereeing and so being able to call them personally to order when necessary the relation of the referee to the linesman is a very great question and whether he should be persuaded by the two men on the line has often been discussed both on and off the field to sum it up briefly my opinion is that a referee should act upon his own discretion but when in doubt should consult his linesman if he gives a decision on the spur of the moment when he is certain he is quite correct he must not be persuaded by the opposition one way or the other still when he is in doubt he should certainly appeal to the linesman and the referee who does not do so is bound to get into bad odor the linesman is closely connected with the referee in every way although his duties are not really arduous in reality he has simply to follow the ball up the field give his decision as to whether the sphere has gone over the lines and to say which side should have the benefit and whether a corner kick should be given or not of recent years the penalty kick has often been a great trouble to the referee and should a man be forgiven for overlooking a certain foul it must be decided by the opinion of the man on the line the penalty kick is probably the most difficult point the referee of today has to deal with and he should give it instantly with the courage of his convictions and even if the decisions of his linesmen are different quickness and decision are what is really wanted in a referee just a word or two to the spectators. They should not judge quickly or harshly and should always recognize that it is one man that must decide, rightly or wrongly. They must not overlook the fact that he has got to do so on the spur of the moment and that he has no time for reflection. Whilst dwelling on the subject of referees, it is a matter of regret that many players do not take any interest in junior circles where their personality would command respect. The boy of today, knowing that a certain international is going to officiate in the game he is taking part in, will play much better than if Tom, Dick, or Harry had the control, a fact which proves for itself that personality is a great thing in the night of the whistle. John Lewis, of Blackburn, has been crowned King of Referees, and undoubtedly this was greatly due to his personality on the field. The player knew he could take no liberties whatever, and when a warning was once given, it was given so that the player was sure that his next act of disobedience would ensure for him his marching order off the field, and that later he would be dealt with by the F.A. Mr. Lewis always let the player know when he had gone too far in any way, and afterwards it was for a player to see that it did not occur again. It is a pity that more first-class players, when they have finished their playing career, do not follow it up by becoming referees. Referees of the class of Major Marindin, J.C. Clegg, J.J. Bentley, and many others are badly wanted in the football of today. I might appeal to the older players to take a greater interest in the beginners than they are doing at the present time. They should remember the days when they were young and the interest then taken in them by their elders who used to go out of their way to encourage them in their sport and endeavor to do today what was done for them years ago. Junior referees are badly wanted, especially men of a reputation that is well respected. 
I, even in my little way, refereeing last year, found my name and fame as a cupholder and international was a great recommendation, and called for the respect that is really due to worthy officials. If this appeals to any player, it is easy for him to become a referee by applying to his local association. The biggest bugbear that the referee has to contend with is the penalty and offside restrictions. To the uninitiated, the offside rule appears quite simple, but to the referee it is the most difficult problem he has got to overcome during the course of the day. His eye is always on the ball, and whilst following it up quickly, he is naturally inclined to miss some point which appeals to the onlookers, every one of whom considers himself a critic. The penalty kick plays an important part in the game of today, and this particular point requires instant decision. Consequently, the referee needs to be a man with good judgment, and one who is not to be deterred by criticism, whether it be by players, spectators, or directors. Chapter 9. Football as a Profession There are many young fellows who are inclined to take up football as a profession, and to these the writer would say, count well the cost before you do it. I have spoken to many players, and few would let their boys take up football as the serious business of life. It's easy to start. Any club that has paid players will give you a trial, and if you're capable will sign you on at perhaps a few shillings up to a pound a week. The objections are that the career is very short and may be interrupted or terminated by an accident at any time, and then, if you are not a master of a trade, you are practically ruined. When boys used to come to me and tell me of their wish to join the Spurs, I always tried to get them to learn some trade first and be master of it, so when necessary they could fall back upon it. This provision for the future is necessary, because you may begin your paid career at 17 or 18 before you have learned a trade, and play on till you are 28 or 30, and then find you are too old to begin to do so. I have known a number who have made no preparation for the future, and in some cases they are starving. It is one of the painful duties of a secretary's life to have to hear appeals for help from veterans who have neglected to acquire some trade before taking up football. No club ought to be allowed for the credit of the game to sign on any players until they have given evidence that they have a marketable knowledge of some trade or profession. As I have said, Many think four pounds a week is a nice income, so it is, but how many get it, and how many years does it last? It may be that in the near future you may get as much as you can out of a club, but even then only a very few of the thousands of paid players will get more than they do now. Many a youth, talking of the matter, has been under the impression that all professionals get the four pounds per week. That is not so. Many of the smaller clubs cannot afford to pay it. There are many who never get beyond 50 shillings per week. No doubt the organization of school games has had a great deal to do with turning the attention of promising lads at school to football as a career. It's true that one out of a thousand schoolboy players may get signed on, but I hardly know of half a dozen. Hundreds of young men apply to clubs for a trial and are soon convinced that they have not skill enough, but those few who are lucky should weigh the matter seriously. I know there are many who may argue that they can, 
and after their playing days are over, get a position as a trainer or manager to some club. Such a place as I had, for instance, for many years, but like everything else nowadays, there are only a very limited number of these positions, while there are scores of applicants for them, and for every vacancy to be filled, there are generally one or two who have very strong backing, and there is little chance for the outsider. Others have often pointed out to me that after a certain number of years they will be entitled to a benefit. This is quite correct, but even if the benefit comes off, how much does it bring in? I should fancy that an average benefit does not give more than 300 or 400 pounds. Indeed, a footballer is considered very lucky if the match that he has chosen brings him 150 pounds. I have known a great many that have brought in less. Mr. J.J. Bentley, who is now the president of the Football League, once wrote an article on football finance in which he stated that not more than six professional clubs were solvent. And he asked the pertinent question, if only six of the leading clubs can make it pay on a really lucrative scale, what is to become of the game? By the game, he doubtless means the professional part of it. The Fourteen years have passed away, but I very much doubt if the situation is altered now. A few clubs, a very few, make a profit on their years working. The majority show a deficit, which annually becomes larger. For a time, collapse is avoided by the bazaar or by turning the club into a limited liability company, but these are only temporary reliefs, and the fact remains that in most clubs either the expenses of management or the salaries of the players are larger than the receipts permit, and sometimes the clubs go under. Another important point for the would-be pro is the question of temperament. You must have exceptional qualities of a personal character. If you cannot take hard knocks as well as give them, and if you cannot control your temper, you're not likely to be successful. The day of the blackguardly dirty player is over, and the man with brain as well as brawn is needed for this work. Education makes all the difference, and the incoming professionals will have to be men of considerable culture. Neither is there any chance for the fellow who cannot control his appetite in the matter of strong drink. There arise before us sad and mournful pictures of men whose names have been familiar as a household word, but whose sun has set years before it should have done, owing to the fact that they soaked in beer. Some I have seen at the palace in the cup final, the heroes of the day. Apparently, the world was at their feet. The next time one set eyes on them, it was difficult to recognize in the battered specimen of humanity that stood before you, the sprightly player of former days. The contrast is painful, but often, very often, has greeted my eyes. No, said a great Southern League captain to me, my boys shall never be paid footballers, but they must learn a trade. The prospects are not pleasing enough. No, it is far better, unless you have superlative talents, to take to some other calling. It's only a small proportion who make their mark in professional football. Some may make a better thing out of it if they are paid cricketers, for they will have wages for both games. But here again, the area is limited, though the pay is good. It's not necessary to be a professional player to gain the highest honors. Take England's captain, V.J. Woodward. He is an architect, 
but from the first day I saw him there was great ability, and it was bound to come out. So with many other amateurs who have come to the front. They have succeeded because they had skill, but also because they kept in good condition owing to their ordinary work, which was well done. To boys I say, stick to your job, and having worked well, go out and play your best. But leave professionalism out of the business. End of section 4